Take your Bibles, if you would, with me, please, and turn to Hebrews 13. Hebrews 13, looking this evening at verses 4 through 6, contentment in Christ. Walking through this list of somewhat separated commands that Paul gives to the Hebrew listeners as he is concluding the book of Hebrews. This evening, we're looking at verses 4 through 6. And as with last week, where we were uh, walking through, we will do the same. We'll try to keep this um, just within the context of the singular commands going one to the other. However, uh, this evening, I do find myself in in a bit of an interesting place because I just preached a message a couple of weeks ago in our marriage mini-series in mornings, Sunday mornings, based upon this verse in Hebrews chapter 13, verse 4 which says marriage is honorable in all and the bed undefiled, but whoremongers and adulterers God will judge. Uh, That's part of our exposition series in Genesis uh, there as as we're we're on that marriage mini-series. And um, as we're we're going through that mini-series, as it were, uh, uh, on marriage itself, a couple of weeks ago we spoke about the privilege and obligation of marriage, if you recall. That only within the scope of the marriage context is physical intimacy, more specifically, as we saw it from the Old Testament, the revealing of nakedness, whether physically or digitally or in print or whatever the case may be, only in the context of biblical marriage is this right before God. Within the context of marriage, these things are honorable in all and absolutely undefiled. Outside of marriage, we see these two classifications whoremongering, and adultery. And the Bible says that God will judge these things. Now, I would encourage you, if uh, you didn't hear that message, to go back and listen to that message. Uh, If you would like a refresher or if you would like to hear a little bit more about the nature of Hebrews chapter 13, verse 4, as it relates to the dangers of sexual indulgence in our lives and societies today. Our society is filled with these things, with this whoremongering and this adultery. And on both a physical and a spiritual level, it is destroying our culture. Now, as I said, I'm not going to go back to it all today, except to emphasize just how lost our society is right now, and that quite specifically because of sexual sin, and that quite specifically because of the Internet. And it is the duty, as I've said before, of every man, every husband, every father to protect himself and his loved ones from this danger. Filter the internet. Do not allow social media to be be a a pervasive and an open thing in your home. Put your computers in public places. Don't give your young children personal electronic devices with internet connections uh, that are not behind very strong uh, um, protections. Set direct rules about the internet at friends' houses if they were to go over there in the same way that you might as it relates to other forms of media or entertainment uh, when they go over to other people's houses. This is not a small matter and it's not one to take lightly. We've spoken all throughout the book of Hebrews, warnings about judgment. Chapter 2, chapter 4, chapter 6, chapter 10, chapter 12, all paint deep and, and frankly terrifying pictures of God's wrath against sin toward unbelievers for sin. And the Bible says whoremongers and adulterers God will judge. So we must be careful of this sin as we would of any other sin, but we recognize the unique danger that our society is susceptible to today due to the proliferation of these things and the ease of access that is found through the internet. 
Be careful. Save yourself from this untoward generation, as it would be said biblically. And if you want uh, a little bit more insight into what Hebrews chapter 13, verse 4 says, for its own sake, I encourage you again to go back and listen to that message on the privilege and obligation of marriage from the biblical marriage series. As we continue in the text then, and we are going to mention a little bit more about Hebrews chapter 13, verse 4, but I want to continue in the text so that you can see what what comes next and, and give a little bit of context to it. So in verses 5 and 6, the Bible says this, Let your conversation be without covetousness and be content with such things as ye have. For he has said, I will never leave thee nor forsake thee, so that we may boldly say, The Lord is my helper, I will not fear what man shall do unto me. Now, um, as it relates to what Paul intended with these verses, the, the uniqueness of this verse in this specific context is, as we're going through this, this kind of broken up list, right, where in, in verses 1 through 3, let brotherly love continue, be not forgetful to entertain strangers. Verse 3, remember them that are in bonds. We kind of were able to connect the context of all three of those so that it was natural and appropriate for me to preach them in one sermon as one topic. Now, it would not necessarily have made a lot of sense for me unless I was going to shift gears pretty dramatically to move on to verse 4, right? Marriage is honorable and all things in the bed undefiled, but whoremongers and adulterers God will judge. It wouldn't have made a lot of sense. And had I not just preached a message in Genesis chapter 2 on this very topic, I would have spent this evening talking about that verse and that verse alone. But what is interesting is that verses 5 and 6 might be considered to actually be within the context of verse 4 from a certain point of view. And and that point of view is, is one that would be connected... The point of view of guarding the marriage bed and being content would be content, uh, connected by certain exhortations such as what Solomon writes in Proverbs chapter 5, verses 15 through 19. The Bible says here, Drink waters out of thine own cistern and running waters out of thine own well. Let thy fountains be dispersed abroad and rivers of water in the streets. Let them be thine own and not strangers with thee. Let thy fountain be blessed and rejoice with the wife of thy youth. Let her be as a loving hind in a pleasant row. Let her breast satisfy thee all, at all times and be thou ravished always with her love. So as Solomon is writing to the young man here in Proverbs 5, and we see Proverbs 5, 6, 7, all of these speaking about the danger of, of fornication, the danger of, of, of casting an eye out toward uh, what I call from Proverbs the willing woman, right? The woman of ill repute. Uh, Solomon exhorts the young man here a theme of contentment, of being content, of, of, of dwelling with the wife of your youth, of being ravished with her love, of, of being content with that which you have in the Lord as it relates to your spouse. That if we as God's people regard properly the significance of the design of God in marriage and the uniqueness of what God has given in the husband and wife relationship, if we regard the spouse that we have as God's provision for my physical needs, then I will be compelled unto particular contentment with the spouse that God has given unto me as it relates to the nature of meeting my needs. And that as we grow together, as we've said so many times in our Sunday morning series, as heirs together of the grace of life, there is a natural and a joyful contentment with the wife of my youth. 
And so there actually is, in a sense, between Hebrews chapter 12 or 13 verse 4 and Hebrews chapter 13 verses 5 and 6, a measure of connection that indeed marriage is honorable in all things and the bed undefiled and that we are called within that marriage relationship and the bonds of that marriage relationship to be content with the spouse that God has given to us as it relates to the, the physical needs and the physical intimacy that we need in our lives. But... In reality, as I studied verses 5 and 6, there's not a lot in it that lends itself to the fact that Paul is speaking on the same topic as, as verse 4. So once again, like I said, if, if I had not just preached a message on it, I'd be preaching on verse 4 this evening. But I did just preach a message on it. And so I'm not going to be preaching in verse 4 specifically. I'm going to move on to 5 and 6, and I'm going to show you why it is that the contentment that we see, the call of contentment that we see in Hebrews 13, 5 and 6, is not necessarily the same call to contentment that Solomon would exhort in Proverbs chapter 5, verses 15 through 19. And the indications of this are several. The first indication is a, a language indication. Paul used a really unique word. Here in the Greek, a unique construction, in fact, in the Greek, as he says, let your conversation be without covetousness. And you can actually generally see from your King James Bible how unique the construction probably is. If you have your Bible there, you won't see it on the screen. But if you have your Bible there and you look at verse 5, notice how many italicized words there are there. Let your is italicized, be is italicized, and then and be content. So we, we see in this first phrase here, let your conversation be without covetousness. Let your and be are, are italicized, meaning that those are not found in the original Greek manuscript. Those words were added by the translators in order to bring about a, a general understanding of the text for, for comprehension's sake. So this is a very interesting construction here. The word without covetousness, as we see here, let your conversation be without covetousness, is the negative form of a word that combines two Greek words. The first word is love, philos. We, we talked about that um, uh, just recently, last week, in fact, that idea of brotherly love, right? Philos, Philadelphia in that case. And then, so it's the Greek word love, philos, combined with the Greek word for a silver coin, arguros. So it's hard to get around the idea here in that this is the negative form of a word that literally means love of silver coins, that what Paul is speaking of here as we speak of covetousness is a love of money. In fact, it's nearly the same word that Paul uses in 1 Timothy chapter 6, verse 10, which we'll come to in a little bit, where he warns the pastor that the love of money is the root of all evil. To this end, it's most natural that this covetousness is not directly speaking of marriage or even of the broader context of what we might read in uh, the 10th commandment or in, in the 10 commandments with Exodus 20 verse 17 saying, thou shalt not covet thy neighbor's house, thou shalt not covet thy neighbor's wife, nor his manservants, nor his maidservant, nor his ox, nor his ass, nor anything that is thy neighbor. So we see that command against covetousness and, and, and of course all of that covetousness is wrong. But as Paul is speaking here in Hebrews chapter 13, he's using this unique word in this unique construction that lends itself to the idea that he is speaking specifically about the love of money. 
the, the desire for things, for possessions, for the natural comforts, being full of the things of this world. And again, from a Hebrew audience perspective, that is not necessarily uh, um, a, a, a surprising thing, as this was something that, as it relates to the, the Judaistic religion, how the Pharisees saw the Lord's blessing, they connected the Lord's blessing to material goods, right? That if a man was wealthy, that was inherently a a reflection of the fact that the Lord was blessing him because he was a righteous man. Uh, we can see that going all the way back to Job, right? That, that, that the idea of righteousness and the idea of physical prosperity had always been naturally connected in the Jewish mind. So for Paul to speak up and to say, let your conversation, let your manner of living, right? That's what that word conversation means. When we talk about conversation, we think of the idea of the, thing, the words that come out of your mouth and then the words that come out of someone else's mouth and we're having a conversation. But the word conversation simply means deportment, the way in which I deport myself, the way in which I present myself, my actions. Let your actions, let your deportment be outside of the love of money. The other indicator that Paul is going well beyond just the idea of coveting in the sense of adultery is the Old Testament verses which Paul then goes on to quote. And we know why he is appealing to Old Testament authority. He's speaking to that Hebrew audience, right? So he's going to appeal to the Old Testament authorities in order to help connect a Hebrew listening base to these New Testament concepts. And by the way, if there was ever any evidence needed that Paul... As, the apostle of, as an apostle of Jesus Christ, did not fundamentally reject the Old Testament. Paul says a lot of things about the law, right, and the idea that we are no longer under the law. And that has led some to believe that Paul was relatively anti-New Testament or anti-Old Testament. Paul was not anti-Old Testament. First off, when he's talking about the law, he's not talking about the fact that the law is evil. We'll actually cover that in a couple of weeks. But simply rather that we are under a new covenant. But we know that Paul was not anti-Old Testament because... Well, Paul invokes the Old Testament all the time as the authority for his arguments throughout all of his epistles. And we see thus the agreement of Old Testament and New Testament, the essential nature of the teachings and truths of the Old Testament to our lives today as interpreted through the clarity of the New Testament and its wisdom. So notice the two Old Testament ideas that Paul invokes. He says, let your conversation be without covetousness and be content with such things as ye have. We'll come back to that statement in a minute. But then he quotes two passages of scripture. The first one here in verse 13. He says, for he hath said, I will never leave thee nor forsake thee. Now we find this as a direct quotation of a certain verse in the, New, uh, in the Old Testament, but then we also find it as a principle found in several other places in the Old Testament. The direct quote that Paul is pulling from here, where quite literally the Lord says this, is Joshua chapter 1, verse 5. Here God is promising to be with Joshua in the same way that he was with Moses. And we read in Joshua chapter 1, verse 5, there shall not any man be able to stand before thee all the days of thy life as I was with Moses, so I will be with thee. I will not fail thee nor forsake thee. And that word fail there is actually could, could easily be translated in the Hebrew to leave. I will not leave thee. I will not forsake thee. So we see this promise made to Joshua, this indelible promise from the Lord so that Paul did not just say in Hebrews chapter 13, verse five, for it is written, he said, for he hath said, and very, very clearly and very plainly, the Lord is literally saying this to Joshua. 
But it is actually used in three other places as well in the, in the Old Testament in a slightly modified way, where it's not God himself saying the words, but rather as is typical of the Old Testament, we see prophets that stand before God's people and tell God's people that God would never leave them nor forsake them. And I'm not going to turn to those passages of scripture, but we find it in Deuteronomy chapter 31, verse 6, in Deuteronomy chapter 31, verse 8, so those two are right together, and then 1 Chronicles chapter 28, verse 20. And in these three other other places, Deuteronomy 31.6, 31.8, and 1 Chronicles 28.20, we find the same promise from the prophets to the people of God that God would not leave them nor forsake them. So this is the first passage of scripture that Paul invokes. He invokes this promise to Joshua, this promise to the people of Israel that God is a God who does not leave his people, that God is a God who does not forsake his people. Now, just quickly before we move on, think about this in the, the reference to contentment. If, if you were struggling with contentment and the verse that was invoked is, I will never leave thee nor forsake thee, that's a certain subset of a contentment issue where that verse would truly minister, right? And if we, again, if we were to argue that these two verses are intrinsically connected to verse 4, that would not be the subset within which contentment would, where, where the verse, I will never leave thee nor forsake thee, would, would really fulfill the concern of not being content with your spouse, right? And the marriage bed being undefiled. So once again, we do see here that Paul is going in a different direction in verse 5 than just contentment in the marriage relationship as he calls them to contentment. Moving on to the second verse here that we see, the second Old Testament passage. This is in uh, Hebrews 13, verse 6. Paul says, so that we may boldly say, the Lord is my helper. I will not fear what man shall do unto me. And this statement is one that we find in Psalm 118, verse 6. Beginning in verse 5, I'll read. The Bible says, I called upon the Lord in distress. The Lord answered me and set me in a large place. The Lord is on my side. I will not fear what can man do unto me? It's also reminiscent of what the psalmist wrote in Psalm 56, verses 3 through 5, where we read this. What time I am afraid, I will trust in thee. In God, I will praise his word. In God, I have put my trust. I will not fear what flesh can do unto me. Every day they rest my words all their thoughts are against me for evil. And he continues, of course, in the text. Now, what these verses share in common... The idea, I will never leave thee nor forsake thee. The idea, the Lord is my helper. I will not fear what, can man, what, what, shall, what man shall do unto me. The thing that these have in trouble is a spiritual determination to trust the Lord in the day of trouble, trial, need, concern, perhaps lack. When difficulties surround these psalmists, the psalms called upon the singer or the listener, to have a determined trust in the goodness and provision of God. And these two psalms, psalms share that commonality with the concept previously considered. God will not leave us. God will not forsake us. So we consider the Old Testament verses that Paul invokes. The command then at hand, let your conversation be without covetousness and be content with such things as ye have. For he hath said, I will never leave thee nor forsake thee, so that we may boldly say, the Lord is my helper, and I will not fear what man shall do unto me. 
So Paul is directing our thoughts, let our conversation be without covetousness, directly toward the, the idea of concerns over material provision. Be content with such things as ye have, material provision, that the manner in which we live our lives would reflect a deep and abiding contentment, not because we are intrinsically healthy and wealthy and we have plenty of money in the bank and we have all the safety nets in place and everything is in place for us to be well, but rather because we are God's people. And since we are God's people, this is what we know. God will never leave you. God will never forsake you. The Lord is your helper so that you may boldly say, you will not fear what man will do unto you. Now think about this as it relates to the possibility of who Paul is speaking to. Once again, we've talked about it many times, but I keep you couched in this in this historical context, if he's speaking to a group of Hebrews, if he's speaking to them in relation to or in, in the context of the, the, the post-resurrection Jewish world, he was probably speaking to a group of Jewish believers who were having a hard time. If you recall what happened in Jerusalem following the resurrection following the day of Pentecost, following the beginning of the church, there was tremendous persecution. If you recall, as we talked about last time, when Paul was traveling through Achaia and Galatia and Macedonia, taking an offering for the people at Jerusalem because they were in such bad condition as it related to their physical well-being. That was because they, they could not get jobs. Their families had disowned them. They, they had lost everything for the sake of Christ. Now imagine Paul standing up and preaching this tremendous sermon to these Hebrew people where he's talking about the superiority of the covenant, the new covenant in Christ's blood to the old covenant that is in the law and calling them unto the kind of faith that would follow the faith of the fathers who have gone before them, the legacy of Abraham and Isaac and of Jacob, clinging to the faith of their fathers, but recognizing the superiority of what we have by faith in Christ, so that we, we are, are all the more fearful, we are all the more uh, 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 earnest to walk in the ways of Christ because with whom, to whom much is given, much is required, uh, that, that, that we have much more a heightened accountability because we have heightened privilege and opportunity. And he's preaching all of this to this group of Hebrews who, if they are indeed a, a, a group of Jews, especially if they were in the area of, of Israel, who were deeply, deeply hurting, persecuted, suffering, we walked through Hebrews 12, and in Hebrews 12, we saw all of the exhortations. No suffering for the moment seemeth to be joyous, but grievous, nevertheless, left afterward. It worketh the peaceable fruit of righteousness to them which are exercised thereby, exhorting unto patience and endurance in the midst of suffering. And then here we are again. And Paul says, it may be that you're lacking right now. But don't let your, your conversation be defined by a desire for that which you do not have. For a, 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 a dependence upon money. But rather be content 
with what you have. And of course, this principle is not foreign to the New Testament. And the rest of the time we're together, I simply get to remind you of this principle as we find it. The most well-known of these contentment passages in the Bible is probably Philippians chapter 4. In Philippians chapter 4, verses 11 through 13, the Bible says this. Paul writing, he says, Not that I speak in respect of want, that means in respect of lacking, lacking in things that are needful for me. For I have learned in whatsoever state I am therewith to be content. I know both how to be abased and I know how to abound. Everywhere and in all things I am instructed both to be full and to be hungry, both to abound and to suffer need. I can do all things through Christ, which strengtheneth me. Paul speaks here of a true and abiding contentment that resided in his heart apart from the circumstances wherein he found himself. That whether he was being shamed or whether he was being honored, whether he was full or whether he was hungry, whether he had much or whether he lacked much, he had learned to abide in a place of contentment, in a place where he was satisfied with what he had. Oh, what an important thing it is to be satisfied say, but pastor, I mean, the American spirit, right? The American spirit is never satisfied. Uh, We don't mean by being satisfied with what you have, don't have ambition. That is not what the Bible talks about when it talks about being satisfied or being content. It is not that you don't have ambition. Well, this is what my dad did, and that's what his dad did, and this is where dad lived, and this is what he, so this is what, this is what I'm going to do, and, 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 and I'm just, I've just got to be content with that, praise God. No, no, that's not what we're talking about here. The idea of being satisfied is that you recognize that which the Lord has given you, and you live in a in a place of joy and contentment in the place that God has you. Not to say that you're not looking potentially toward what the Lord might be able to do with you in the future, how the Lord can use your skills and your gifts and your abilities and the opportunities that that will be presented for you to grow or for you to expand or whatever it might be, but that you are not driven by a need for more, but you're driven rather by your love for the Lord and your determination to follow him where he takes you. To use the gifts, the abilities, the skills that he's given you to the best of your ability and to glorify him with it. It's a very different motivation. It's a very different attitude. And so Paul said, I have been abased and I've abounded. I've had much, I've had little. He said, but I've learned, regardless of the physical condition within which I find myself, I have learned to be content to be satisfied, to be okay with it. He had successfully assumed a spirit-minded understanding of the nature of material possessions, whereby he had confidence as a child of God that God would never leave him and God would never forsake him, that the Lord was his helper. Therefore, he did not need to fear what man could do unto him. Man could take everything that Paul had. That's okay. He still had the Lord. And by the way, the Lord would still take care of him because God does not fail. God does not leave us. God does not forsake us. He will take care of us. And in this state of faith, Paul truly believed that there was no point of his daily existence, no matter what he had or did not have, where he was not being given what God wanted him to have as long as he was walking with the Lord. What a place of contentment. That we can get to the place where we are not worried or anxious about what we might lack, 
because we recognize that we have been walking with the Lord. And so what we have is what God has given us. What a place to be. Paul had such faith in the love and the good intentions of God for him that he was fully convinced that if he had it, he had it because it was God's best for him. If he didn't have it, he didn't have it because it was God's best for him. And so he was content. He was not saying, well, if I had more money, imagine what I could do for God and for others. God, if only you would give me more money. Well, yes, if, if, if you could do more with it and, and you could do more for God and for others and, and the Lord would see fit, then he'll give it to you. But rather saying, I am God's child. I am being faithful. I will be faithful. I have been faithful. And this is what God has given me. So this is what God wants me to have. And I will be content with it as I continue to move forward for the Lord. Now, a few minutes ago, I mentioned 1 Timothy chapter 6, speaking about the love of money. Paul's statement regarding this fact is rooted in another great contentment passage. And it's perhaps more relevant, as I said already, to Hebrews 13. 1 Timothy chapter 6, beginning in verse 6, the Bible says this, But godliness with contentment is great gain. But godliness with contentment is great gain. For we brought nothing into this world, and it is certain we can carry nothing out. And having food and raiment, let us therewith be content. But they that will be rich fall into temptation and a snare, and into many foolish and hurtful lusts, which drown men in destruction and perdition. For the love of money is the root of all evil, which while some coveted after, they have erred from the faith and pierced themselves through with many sorrows. Now this is in many ways the clearest New Testament connection between the temptation of trusting in money, material wealth and goods, and the call or the nature unto contentment. Notice, as I say every time I'm in this passage, the Bible does not say that money is the root of all evil. Money is just a thing. The love of money is the root of all evil. That's what the Bible says. The pursuit of riches as the object of our contentment. In verse 9, he says, But they that will be rich fall into temptation and a snare. It is the will to be rich. It is the drive to be rich. Not the drive to use your abilities to the best of your ability to serve the Lord. And through that, he gives you great wealth. That's different altogether. Not the drive to be faithful with the things that you have and the good ideas and the, and the talents and the abilities and through that you are successful. That's a different idea together. But rather the idea that you say, I am not content because I need to be wealthier. They that will be rich fall into temptation and a snare. Why? Because the easiest way to riches is often not the way of integrity. The easiest way to riches is not going to be the path of godliness. That's not, never going to be the easiest way to wealth. Why? Because wealth, material possessions, are not a natural outworking of the Christian experience. 
They may be a side effect of the fact that you are living in a country that uh, allows you to serve the Lord in the manner that is right before you, in good conscience before Him, and your integrity, and your work ethic, and, and your honesty, and all of these things have in this country meant that you can become wealthy as a Christian. But for every Christian who, through integrity and work ethic, becomes rich, there's some guy who's shaking his fist at the Lord who probably got rich a lot faster through the means of lack of integrity, through greed, through ambition, through I will step on whoever I have to step on, I will go through whoever I have to go through to get what is coming to me, right? And so the love of money is the root of all evil. The pursuit of material goods is the foundation of our confidence, of our contentment. And it is this that compels men to degrade themselves, to cast off morality, to cast off decency, to cast off honor, to cast off virtue in order to gain possessions which they will have for a few years and then those things will fill a landfill or will be passed to someone else because if one thing is certain, it is this. We brought nothing into this world and we will take nothing out of it. And so we're called to remember again that godliness with contentment is great gain. The great gain of godliness. Jesus said it this way in Matthew 6, 19 and 20. Lay not up for yourselves treasures upon earth where moth and rust doth corrupt and where thieves break through and steal, but lay up for yourselves treasures in heaven where neither moth nor rust doth corrupt and where thieves do not break through nor steal. And of course, we all know verse 21, for where your treasure is, There will your heart be also. I didn't have that on the screen, but it's there. And with all this in mind, let's turn our attention back to Hebrews chapter 13, verses 5 and 6. Each passage we have considered from the New Testament today has been a great expression of the call in our lives to be content with that which we have. Let your conversation, the manner in which you live your life, the motivation, the things as they are expressed through your actions, your words, your intentions, your desires, let that be without covetousness, outside of a love for the silver, (laughs) literally, and be content with such things as ye have. Why? Why? Because God will take care of you. You don't have to be anxious. You don't have to be covetous. You don't have to pursue at all costs the things of this world. The Lord will provide. He will not leave you. He will not forsake you. So be content. If God has it for you, if God wants it for you, you'll have it. Be content. Why? So that we may boldly say, the Lord is on my side. The Lord is my helper. I will not fear what man shall do unto me. So we see, we have seen this expression. Pursue godliness and contentment above the love of money, above covetousness. But what Hebrews 13 does so well is give us this why. This why this, this spirit-minded understanding this, of material provision, that whereby we have confidence as a child of God that God will not leave us nor forsake us, that the Lord is our helper. And in this state of faith, we will truly believe that there's no point in our daily existence where we are not being taken care of if we are walking with the Lord. 
And in this sort of a context, we will have such faith and love in God's good intentions toward us that we will be fully convinced whatever we have or don't have is God's best for us. And this is where we step into our application this evening. We live in, as it were, perilous times. Costs are rising, inflation's going through the roof, our government is artificially hindering the economy in an attempt to fundamentally transform it in ways that might permanently threaten our country's prosperity. Beyond that, the religion of humanism has dominated every institution and most private businesses. Inherent in humanism, inherent in the religious zeal of religious humanism is a deep-seated anti-Christianity And it may very well not be long before Christians are specifically targeted by both governments and private companies for destruction. And these are just the macro level issues, right? The big issues in your nitty gritty every day. Perhaps you're dealing with your own problems as it relates to provision, difficulties. And even if things don't stay bad, if the current leaders are replaced by people who actually love this country and love liberty, if humanism is beaten back from the walls, if we enter another time of true societal prosperity, you know what? This problem doesn't go away, right? The the, the danger of covetousness, the danger of lacking contentment with such things as we have, the danger of, of, of feeling a a, a lack of material goods can actually get worse in times of prosperity, can't it? The love of money might become stronger when society is more prosperous. The love of money might become stronger when your dollar goes farther because now you can actually afford to get the things that you have always wanted. That itch for consumption might be more compulsive than when, uh, w- when there's plenty to go around than when you're actually having to pinch those pennies. And Paul warned in 1 Timothy 6 that the love of money has led many into temptations and snares, into foolish and hurtful lusts which drown men in destruction and perdition. Speaking of men who pursue the love of money to their own destruction, who gamble away what little they have in hope of the big score, women who sell their honor and their virtue and their dignity in the name of gaining material goods, those who cheat, those who lie, those who steal, who prey on the weak or the innocent or the trusting or the vulnerable in order that they might have more of this world's goods at the expense of others. And while these warnings are strong, for these things are possible, among well-adjusted Christians, other dangers are possible as well, which Hebrews 13 speaks to more clearly. The danger of losing contentment. The danger of being anxious about the amount of money that you have. Anxious about whether or not the bills will be paid. Spending what you don't have to get what you don't need. Of being frustrated with yourself or your parents or your family because you can't afford to live like those that are around us. Of the compulsion to keep up with the Joneses, as it's called. An idiom seeking 
uh, where you see someone else and the things that they have and, and you become discontent because they have something that you want and it compels you to want it too. And these are the ones that are perhaps a little bit more common to the well-adjusted Christian as it relates to a lack of contentment. We may not necessarily have as much of a problem with the temptation to lie, to cheat, to steal, to gain wealth at the expense of others, to uh, get involved in some sort of Ponzi scheme or pyramid scheme in order to gain wealth at other people's expense, uh, to um, uh, sell our dignity or to gamble away what little we have. And, and, And these things afflict believers too from time to time. But those aren't as much the problems that we would deal with as these other things, right? The anxiousness, the, uh, the, 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 uh, um, uh, in, uh, inordinate or, or, or out of balance spending, the, the um, desire to live up to a certain standard of living, the, the, the looking across at others and the things they have and wanting it as well, that covetousness, that lust. But we are reminded that things can't buy happiness. And not only can things not buy happiness. Things can never grant you true contentment. So then what is the secret to contentment? If the secret to contentment is not having everything that you could possibly want, and if Paul said that he can learn to be content whether he abounds or whether he lacks, and that, that we can live in contentment with such things as we have, And live without covetousness, even if we lack. What is the key to that? Well, really, there's two things. The first, the first key to contentment is gratitude. Being thankful to the Lord. I will never leave thee nor forsake thee, God said. God has always taken care of us. Do you remember to thank him for that? For the things that you have? For the ways that you have been blessed? We were talking to a family. My wife and I had a family over yesterday. And we were talking about um, just how far above our means the Lord has allowed us to live. Now, we don't have it all. We're not uh, in, in glamorous, a glamorous situation, but Wow. What a blessing, what, 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 what a blessed state that my family can live in, so far above the means that we have. Thankfulness, gratitude. It's the secret to contentment, first is gratitude, and second is faith. The Lord is my helper, therefore I will not fear what man can do unto me. I'm not going to fear And this is that potential persecution part. I am not going to fear that man can take away these things, these material things. Because you know what? If the Lord is on my side, what can man do to me? He can't take away anything of true value, can he? Because I've laid up my treasure in heaven. And if my treasure is in heaven and not on this earth, then what can man take away from me that can do anything of true harm to me? We've said it before as it relates to persecution. The worst thing they can do is send you home. The Lord is my helper. I will not fear what man can do unto me. 
Are you discontent with what you have? Do you look at others and wish you had what they have? Have you begun to allow the lie to enter your mind which seeks to convince you that more money would solve your problems? Are you afraid an enemy, the world around us, might take what you have? So you've built in all sorts of safety nets and sought to gather as much as you can, like, like an animal before winter, gathering everything that they can so that they, they, they have enough in store for, for, for the winter time. And again, not, not preaching against saving, but what I'm saying is, where you are so afraid and driven by that fear of what man can do unto you, are you troubled by the anti-Christian sentiment which is becoming louder Now, as it relates to material possessions, if you aren't being a good steward, then your problem begins there, right? If you're afraid that you're not, if if you are lacking and you're afraid that you don't have enough and it's causing the anxiety or the fear or whatever it might be and you're not being a good steward of that which you have because you're discontent, well, that's where the problem begins. You can't both be a bad steward of of the blessings that the Lord has given you And be content with such things as you have. But under the assumption that we are doing our part, we're being faithful with the things God has given us. If you find yourself in this place of fear, anxiety, and discontent, this is your chance to remember the character of your God. I will never leave you nor forsake you. The Lord is my helper, and I will not fear what man shall do unto me. And notice what he says there in verse 6, so that we may boldly say this, that the Lord is on my side. As you're grateful for that which you have, as you exercise faith in the one who gave it to you, not just that he gave it to you, but why he gave it to you, because your loving Father knows what you need better than you know what you need yourself. You will find your conversation, your manner of living, to be expressed in true contentment. And may this be the conversation of us in this room. May we express as we live throughout the day, as we interact with one another, as we interact with the world around us, may, may we emanate an attitude of contentment. Conversation without covetousness. And as you and I might expect in this book of Hebrews, it really all points right back to faith, doesn't it? Believing both that God is and that God is a rewarder of them that diligently seek Him. And one of the wonderful outworkings of this faith, whereby I recognize that all that I have is, is, is the, the blessed hand of a, of a loving God upon me. One of the blessed outworkings of that faith is contentment. Thank you for listening to Pastor Jamin Wickler from Legacy Baptist Church in Buffalo, Minnesota. More information about Legacy Baptist Church and a library of sermons are available at www.legacybaptistchurch.net.